Today is uh, part two of our series called Knowing Truth, where we're looking at the various letters that the Apostle John wrote. More specifically, we're looking at 1 John, which he had written in about the early 90s AD. And he was writing in response to a, a false doctrine, a heresy that had come out called Gnosticism. It was this new philosophy that had sort of infiltrated the world that basically said this, that in order to be made right with God, in order to have salvation with God, you had to have some sort of a secret knowledge. That it was, it was hidden from the average person that you had to sort of look within yourself and that you were able to be find, uh, you know, what is the truth of God and, and who God is. And so John's like, whoa, 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 this isn't right. And John was imprisoned at the time on uh, the Isle of Malta, which is right off the coast of Greece. And he's there, he's the last remaining disciple that's still alive. And he finds out about this. And so he decides he's going to write this letter to the seven churches there in Asia Minor. Now, these were the seven same churches that he had written the uh, book of Revelation to about 20 years prior to this. But he's going to write about Gnosticism here. And that, look, it isn't this secret knowledge that you you can know the truth of who God is. In fact, you can know the truth and the truth will in turn set you free. And so last week we looked at uh, the very end of his letter where he writes these words, 1 John 5, 13. He says, I write this letter to you who believe in the Son of God so that you will what? So that you will know that you have eternal life. That's God's desire for you is that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. And so we're going to continue to look at that here this morning. Last week we looked at more of the intellectual side of how to know. Today I want to look at more of the experiential side of how to know that there is a God and that you're in a right relationship with him. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 1 again. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. All the scriptures will be on the screen there behind me. Also, if you got a program as you came in this morning, all the scriptures are there. Or you can pull out your smartphone. I don't even know what I did with my phone. My phone's missing somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I was using it as a flashlight earlier. Anyway, uh, it's laying around somewhere. Uh, pull out your smartphone that looks like this. Yeah, there we go. And uh, <laughs> and go to exponential.church and you'll be able to follow along with all the uh, scriptures there on our website as well. Now, as you're continuing to, to turn there, let me tell you that as a pastor, teaching John is one of the harder types of things to do. Uh, let me explain it to you this way. Have you ever heard the saying, and I use this in marriage counseling all the time, that, that men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti? Have you ever heard that before? That, that men are like very compartmentalized in their thinking. You know, there's like a little section like a waffle, you know, for everything. Whereas women, their thoughts are like all sort of jumbled together like spaghetti and every thought sort of relates to another thought. And that's why guys sometimes, you know, you're talking to your wife or, you know, and, and you're like, how did that even, what we're talking about, how did we even get over to this? It's because in her mind, one thing triggered another thing, which triggered another thing. And so it's all jumbled in the, there together. Well, keep in mind that John was the apostle of love. So I think John was sort of in touch with his feminine side because John's trying to make like five different points here in 1 John, but yet they're all jumbled all over the place. You know, if Paul was writing this particular letter, Paul would have been, here's point one, 
Here's a subpoint, another subpoint. Here's point two, subpoint, subpoint. John's like, here's point one, and then there's point four, and oh, I forgot there's another thing in point one I wanted to talk about, then there's point three, and there's point five. Did I mention there's another thing in point one I wanted to talk about? So John's like just all over. And so that's why today as we go through this, we're going to be like all through John all over the place. It's not like just following along like we did in our, our previous series where we were looking at Paul, and it was just like every week we were able to do a different chapter and you know just keep going on. doesn't work that way with John. So anyway, that's why we're doing this. So, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen, We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life, the one whose life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him, and now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. John, of course, there is referring to Jesus. And he's saying, look, we don't believe in Jesus because we have some sort of secret knowledge of who God is and what God did. No, we believe in Jesus because we saw him. We touched him. We knew him. We had listened to him. There's nothing secret about this at all. That God himself became flesh and he walked amongst us and a very real person called Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life and Jesus died on the cross. But then Jesus rose again from the dead, victorious over the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death itself. John's like, look, after his death, after his burial, we saw him again. We spoke to him. We ate with him. Some of us even touched him. And so what we believe as followers of Jesus isn't something that we were just merely told. It's not something that we merely just read. It's not something that we just, you know, we had heard at one point. John's saying, no, the reason that we believe is because we were there. We saw it. We experienced Jesus alive, back from the grave. And I've shared this with you before. The reason that we are Christians today has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. As good as what the teachings of Jesus are, That is not why we are followers of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus because of the resurrection. See, it doesn't matter how good Jesus' teachings are. There's other people that have been wise teachers through the years. The reason that we hold such high value on Jesus' teachings is because Jesus said, I am God and you can kill me and I will come back to life again. And he did. And that's why we say, oh, we should follow the the words of Jesus. Because he truly is God. And that's what John is saying here. Is that look, this isn't a secret knowledge of who God is. There's nothing secret about it at all. We saw him. We ate with him. We touched him. We heard him teaching. And it wasn't just John. It was 500 people. 500 people that got to experience the resurrected Jesus. And not just John, but other people like Matthew and Mark. And then later on, Paul say, look, we saw him. We touched him. We talked to him. This is the truth. It's an experience that they had. Now, John gives another example of how our faith is sometimes based off of experiences. 
in his gospel. In, in John chapter 9, he writes about this guy that was born blind, and Jesus comes and he heals this blind man. And later on, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they, they find out about it, and they're not happy about it, because this man keeps giving credit to Jesus, that Jesus is God, and God has healed me of this blindness. And they're like, you can't say that! This Jesus guy, he's a sinner. This Jesus guy, he teaches false doctrines. You can't keep saying this. Look at what the man says. John chapter 9, verse 25. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is this. I used to be blind, but now I can see. This man had an experience with Jesus that was absolutely undeniable. Now, after this experience with Jesus, and he can now see, does this mean that all of a sudden now he can answer every theological question somebody would throw at him? No. What if somebody came up to him and said, do you really believe that God created the entire world in seven days? Do you really believe that there was such a man named Noah and that God flooded the whole world and that Noah built a big boat and saved everything? Do you really believe that? Are you so dumb that you would believe something like that? Do you really believe that there was a guy named Moses and, and Moses thrust his staff into the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted? And the guy would have looked at him and went, I don't know what to tell you about any of that, but here's what I know. I once was blind, but now I can see. I had an experience with Jesus, and Jesus has changed me. And I'm different. Yes, all those other things, you know, seven-day creation and, and Noah and, and Moses and all that, that all may seem impossible, but I used to think that me seeing was impossible. But now I can see. And that's why I believe. I personally experienced this. And I don't know how to explain it, but it just happened. Let me illustrate this for you another way. How many of you are baseball fans? Any baseball fans out there? Yeah, a couple baseball fans. Right now we're in the midst of the baseball playoffs. And when you watch baseball, you can see something different every single day, every single game. It's just an amazing sport, amazing game to watch. Well, back in 2002, a Yale physicist did an entire study on the game of baseball called the physics of baseball. And he did all these different studies and, and various things to sort of help make physics a little bit more accessible to the average person like you and I, but he used baseball as an analogy. And so here's one of the things he discovered. And we got a picture here just so you can sort of picture this in case you're not a, a big baseball fan. But this is sort of a, a point of view here of what it looks like from the umpire. But you see the batter there and the pitcher's in the middle of his windup. The ball's getting ready to be released from his hand. It's 60 feet, 6 inches from the pitcher's mound to home plate. 60 feet, 6 inches. A fastball that the, 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 the pitcher throws at 90 miles per hour, takes 400 milliseconds to go from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove. 400 milliseconds. Snap of a finger. 
That's how fast, where he's at right now, it's getting ready to leave his hand and it's in the catcher's glove. You with me? Very, very fast, 400 milliseconds. That's less than half a second. Here's what this Yale physicist discovered. And, and he had done all kinds of like different tests of the brain and you know, hooking guys up and, 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 and like in batting cages and stuff just to see how things were doing and, and their eye reactions and all this kind of stuff. It takes, if, if, if the batter's there, it takes him, he's ready, 200 milliseconds for his brain to even register whether he wants to swing or not. So, in other words, half of the time that the ball is in the air, he's just even deciding, do I want to swing? Now, here's the next thing. That's 200 milliseconds, half the time. The next 100 milliseconds is determining if he does decide to swing, do I need to swing high, do I need to swing low, inside, outside, where, where do I need to swing? And then the actual mechanics of the swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. Now, if you're doing the math with me, Nate is, Nate like, looked at me like, what? It takes 400 milliseconds for the ball to get from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove. But it took him 200 milliseconds to register whether to swing or not, another 100 milliseconds to determine where to swing, and then 150 milliseconds to actually do the swing. Some of you are like counting, you got your shoes off and stuff, and you're on, wait, that is 450 milliseconds. It only took 400 milliseconds for the ball to get past them at 90 miles per hour. In other words, according to the law of physics, it is impossible for a human being to hit a 90 mile per hour fastball. Now, how many of you believe that it's impossible for a human being to hit a 90 mile per hour fastball? No hands are going up. Why? Because even if you're not a baseball fan, you've seen people hit a 90 mile per hour fastball. In fact, if you are a baseball fan, you know that some pitchers throw up to 100 miles per hour. Now, this guy isn't a dummy. He's a Yale physicist. And they did all kinds of, of research into this. Humanly, it's impossible to hit a 90-mile-per-hour fastball, but yet we see it happen all the time. And so what you're going is, I don't know how to explain it, but yet I've seen it. I've experienced it. And because I've experienced it, I believe it. You see where I'm going with this? There are some things that we as humans just can't explain about God. But yet we go, you know what? There's some things about God that I've experienced. And because I've experienced it, that is why I believe. There are just certain things I just cannot deny. And that's what John is writing about here. He says, look, I don't know how to explain everything about our faith. I don't even know how to scientifically talk about even then a man came back to life again from the dead. But yet I saw Jesus with my own eyes. I talked to him after his resurrection. I ate with him. I touched him. Folks, that is objective truth. That is fact. There is absolutely no denying that. 
There's nothing subjective about this at all. Now, let me just make sure that we're clear on this because this is an important thing for you to understand because this is something that happens in our world all the time. There is a huge difference between objective truth and subjective truth. Let me explain that to you. Objective truth is things that are facts. There's absolutely no denying it. Subjective truth is things that could be true of you but may not be true of me. Let me give you a great example of subjective truth because it happens every single week here at Exponential. After I'm done here on the stage, I go downstairs, I go out, I'm in the cafe there, I'm standing there, I'm talking to some of you. Every single week, especially during the summertime, people will come up to me and some people will be like, oh my goodness, I was freezing in there today. I had to put on a sweater and it's summertime. You guys had it freezing in there. couple more people come through the line. Somebody else will go, wow, it was roasting in there today. Did you guys even have the air on or not? Now, who was lying? Nobody. For both people, they were speaking the truth. But it was subjective. It was what was truth for them. One person was cold. One person was really, really hot. That's subjective truth. What may be true for you may not be true for me. Objective truth is truth no matter what. And I'll give you a great example. You know, as I get to travel around the country and, and talk to different people, sometimes when I'm out of state, you know, somebody will say, well, where, where do you live now? And I'm like, I live in the capital of Pennsylvania. And they're like, oh, cool, you live in Philadelphia. I'm like, no, it's actually uh, Harrisburg. They're like, what? I thought Philadelphia was the capital of, of Pennsylvania. Nope, it's not. And they're like, you sure? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I live there. It's like right up the street from where I live. Now, you can understand why they would think that, right? Philadelphia is more known. It's a bigger city. And so it's easy that somebody could, could get that con confused. But they can't say, well... My truth, my truth is that Philadelphia is the capital. It doesn't work that way. The objective truth is Harrisburg is the capital of Pennsylvania. Now, I've never had this happen, but imagine that other people, you know, uh, got together with this particular person, and they were talking about it, and then they all came to me, and they started ganging up on me going, we don't think you're right. And there's more of us than there is of you, and so we all believe that Philadelphia is the capital, so that's what the capital is. Does that suddenly mean that Philadelphia is now the capital? No. Why? Because when it comes to objective truth, there can only be one truth. There can only be one right answer. Now, the reason I bring this up is that the world wants you to believe that when it comes to Christianity, that Christianity is subjective truth, not objective truth. So as you watch Oprah or Ellen or Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz or any of the other quack doctors that are out there, right? They all say the same thing. Look, if Jesus works for you, great. But if he doesn't work for you, then try Buddha or try Muhammad or try Confucius or, in fact, don't even try any religion at all. If that's your truth, then you speak your truth. 
But John says here, look, there is absolutely nothing subjective about our faith at all because we were there. We were there. And the things that we're writing to you is eyewitness accounts that we saw the resurrected Jesus. We talked to him. We ate with him. We touched him. Those are the facts, which makes Jesus' words that John recorded in John 14, 6 even more powerful. Here's what Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me and Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius or just come up with your own thing. Is that what it says? Is that what Jesus said? No. John says, Jesus said to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when the world wants to argue with you about, well, you know, it's good that you found Jesus and Jesus is good for you, but he may not be for everybody. Some people, it may be Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or, or whatever they want to do. Their argument isn't with you. They can't say that Jesus is a good guy and a good teacher and, well, maybe, because their argument is with Jesus. Jesus is the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Either Jesus is everything or he's nothing. This is objective truth. Not because we believe that the Bible says so, but because people in the Bible, like John, like Matthew, like Paul, all said we were eyewitnesses of what happened. That Jesus claimed that he was God. Jesus claimed that he could be killed, but that he would rise again from the dead. And we were there. And we didn't believe it at first, but then after we saw him, we realized he is God in the flesh. And so the words of Jesus hold a lot of weight. They hold a lot of merit. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. These are the words of God to us. So again, Christianity isn't based on the teachings of Jesus. It's based on the eyewitness accounts of those who knew Jesus. Now, some of you are going, okay, great for them. They got to experience Jesus alive in his resurrection. They got to eat with him and talk to him and touch him. But what's that have to do with me? How does that help me to have an experience with Jesus? Well, John writes about that. First John chapter 1, verse 3, as we continue on, John writes, we are telling you about what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you, you, are you included in you? Are you a part of you? Yes, so that you may share the fellowship and the joys that we have with the Father and with Jesus Christ, his Son. John says, I'm sharing what I've experienced because God wants you to experience it as well. And sure, it may not be in the exact same way that we got to experience Jesus, but every time you get to experience God in some way, because of our experiences, because of what we heard, he says, know that you are going to have similar types of experiences. Again, not the exact same way, but something similar will happen for you. So, for example, John writes in his gospel about one day Jesus is out and he feeds the 5,000. It's this miracle that takes place. John's like, look, Jesus may never come to your house and multiply loaves and fish, 
But any time you have ever had something supernaturally happen where you had a need and all of a sudden it was supernaturally taken care of and you had no possible way to explain it, John's like, that's us now being able to share with you in the same way. That's God showed up. That's proof that there is a God. Or in John chapter 4, he writes about Jesus encountering this woman and he knows this woman's deepest, darkest, dirtiest sins. But yet Jesus loves her and shows compassion to her. If you've ever had one of those moments where you're just secretly, you know, sort of by yourself and all the weight of your sin and, and everything that's going on in your life just sort of overwhelming you, but then all of a sudden you just felt this, this love this peace and this grace and this sense of just a love of God. John's like, that's the exact same thing that we saw Jesus do with this woman. And you're sharing in that now. And so it's not just John, but all the other gospel writers and all the other writers in the, the New Testament, they keep writing over and over and over about these miracles that God does, that Jesus is doing there in their midst. John says, you can experience a very similar thing. And when you experience those things, realize that there is a God. That there is a God. And you're experiencing him in that way. And that the same God that we, as eyewitnesses, saw working powerfully, he wants to work powerfully in your life as well. And I know for me personally, after I became a follower of Jesus back in 93, there were some, some things that started to happen supernaturally that I couldn't explain. But those things just, they gave me a greater belief in God's word. Because I was experiencing God at work and there was no other way it could possibly have happened. And so all of a sudden, as I started to read other things that I was like, well, that couldn't have ever happened. I started to go, wait, I just experienced things that shouldn't have happened either. And so who am I to doubt what these eyewitnesses actually said happened? And God wants to do the same thing for you. Remember, the physics of baseball say that it's impossible to hit a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. But yet, because you've seen it with your eyes, you say, well, wait, it is possible. And that's what God wants for you. It's the same way for all of us as Christians. Some things just have to be experienced in order to believe it. Now, I want to be very clear about something. Your experiences alone do not prove Christianity. Let me say that again. Your experiences alone do not prove Christianity. What your experiences do, though, is they validate the underlying truths of Christianity. So don't be one of those Christians that people go, well, why are you a Christian? And you're like... I just feel like it's the right thing. Don't be one of those. That's subjective. Your faith isn't to be subjective. Your faith is to be based off of objective truths. I mean, the, the Mormons, if you ever met a Mormon before and you ask them, why do you believe the Book of Mormon is true? Their answer, and every single one of them will say this, because I have a burning in my bosom. I'm like, dude, I can get you some antacid for that. I mean, that. 
I mean, just because you have a little heartburn doesn't mean that, oh, there's a God in his name, you know. <laughs> you know. So it, it isn't just what you feel. But again, the things that you experience, they do help to, to prove your faith. They help to strengthen your faith. But again, they're only strengthening those things which are objectively true. Now, some of you are going, this whole experiencing God thing sounds so cool. How do I experience God? Like you're, you're talking that, that they did and that you've been able to do. Go over. How, how do I experience God in my life? John writes about this. This is where he starts skipping around. 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. He says, I've written to warn you about those who are trying to deceive you, but they're no match for what's embedded deeply within you, the Holy Spirit who lives in your hearts so that you don't need anyone else to teach you what is right. For the Spirit is truthful and teaches you everything that you need to know. Now, some of you are going, does this mean we should fire Gilbert? <laughs> The answer is no. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because I need the money. I'm saying that because there's other parts of Scripture, other writers of Scripture that talk about the value of pastors and teachers and preachers and why you need that type of uh, thing in your life and, and why we are uh, an important part of the body of Christ. But what John is writing here is that the most powerful teacher that you have is the Holy Spirit. Because I can't be with you everywhere that you go. But you know who can? God himself. God himself, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sends to you at the very moment that you pray and you ask for his forgiveness and you ask for his leadership. He sends his spirit to live inside of you. The spirit is with you always to be your teacher, to be your leader, to be your guide. And as John writes here, there is nothing more powerful. No one is more powerful than the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will always teach you the right thing to do. So John writes here that the number one way you're going to experience God in your life is through the Spirit speaking to you. You're going, well, that sounds sort of weird. Like, am I going to like start hearing voices or what? And the answer is, maybe, I don't know. Because the Spirit can do whatever the Spirit wants to do. Because the Spirit is God. So if the Spirit wants to speak audibly, the Spirit can speak audibly to you. I've never had the Spirit speak audibly to me, but he can. But most of the time, what it is, is it's just this, this overwhelming sense of God's presence and, and the desires that God has for you. It's like a weight that is on you, not in a bad way, but it's just like, you know that you know that you know that you know that, that God is speaking. John records something that Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep recognize my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep recognize my voice, Jesus says. And that's what it is. Again, it's not an audible thing. It's just a recognition of the voice of the Spirit speaking. You know, all of us in any relationship, the closer we get to somebody, the more we recognize their voice. I could be in a crowd of thousands of people. And if all of a sudden I heard Lisa's voice, I would recognize it. Now, first of all, I'd be impressed because she's so soft-spoken that she even got to speak loud enough over a crowd of a thousand people. 
But if I heard Gilbert, I would know that that's her voice. Why? Because I know her enough, we're close enough that I recognize it. And Jesus says, that's what I want with you. I want a relationship with you that is so close that no matter what the world is shouting at you, no matter how hectic life gets, you are able to hear my voice. He said, and I want you to even be able to hear my voice when I whisper it to you. I want you to be able to hear my still, small voice. Because if you're hearing a whisper, what that means is he didn't have to shout at you. It means that you're constantly in tune. You're constantly listening. Is God speaking to me right now or not? Because there's a lot of clatter going on. But I'm listening. I'm listening. Is he whispering to me or not? You're going, okay, this is, this is good. I'm up for it. You know, what, 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 would this, how, what, what would this look like in real life? How, how would this ever play out? And let me give you an example. Remember last week I was, I was sharing with you, I gave you two illustrations. I told you about Bill Gates paying for the all expense paid trip for you, you know, uh, that you couldn't possibly pay for. And that was an illustration of God's grace, right? And making him the, 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 the savior of your life, that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. But then I, I share with you the, the chair illustration. And that's the... The, making Jesus the Lord of your life, making him the leader of your life. And I, I was talking about, you know, that you've got to be able to, to sit in the, the chair, and that's how you know that you're really in a right relationship with God. Well, I had something happen uh, this past week. I met with somebody over in the, the living room there, and this person was sharing with me that I'm not sure that I'm sitting in the chair or not. And we talked about it, and this person started to share why they didn't think that they were sitting in the chair, and I, I got to realize, well, wait, this is stuff that you've already repented of and repented of like years and years ago. And I realized that this person actually was sitting in the chair, but they just didn't think that they were sitting in the chair. And so through tear-filled eyes, this person kept saying, I just want to know that I'm sitting in the chair. And it was in that moment that the Spirit spoke to me and said, get up, leave the room, go up onto the stage, bring the literal chair into the living room over there so that the person can sit in it. And so I came back in, I said, there it is. You've been asking, sit in it. And the person came and sat in my chair. It was just this beautiful moment of this, this, the grace of God washing over this person. And they realize that they are truly forgiven. And they are where they need to be with God. I'm not smart enough to have ever thought to come in and get my chair and bring it in. All I know is I heard the voice of the Spirit say, go get the chair and bring it in here. Now we kept talking, and finally the person said, uh, can I go sit back on the couch again? I was like, yeah, because it's not actually a very comfortable chair. <laughs> but then the Spirit spoke to me again and said, isn't that Christianity? Sitting in the chair, being in Jesus, isn't always comfortable. And so I shared that. Again, I wasn't smart enough to come up with that myself. 
It's just listening to the voice of the Spirit and then doing whatever the Spirit wants you to do. But in order to listen to the Spirit, again, you've got to be close to God. You need to be able to recognize His voice. Again, I know some of you are going, this all sounds so weird. How many of you are familiar with those like magic eye pictures? You know what I'm talking about? Like they have all the like the dots and everything, and like if you hold it like a certain way or whatever, you cross your eyes just the right way, you're able to see a picture. I have never ever seen the picture. And so I think that people are crazy. I don't think there's actually a picture there. But yet some of you are going, yes, no, Gilbert, there is. It's a real thing. Why? Because you've experienced it. So the world looks at us like we're crazy. Like I think that some of you are crazy with the magic eye picture. (laughs) That it can't actually be a real thing. But yet for those of you that experience, you go, no, it is. It really is. So hearing from the Spirit and, and listening to His voice is so important because there's some things that you just you can't believe until you actually experience it and before I go any further let me just be really clear here and I've shared this before how do you know that it is the voice of the spirit and not just bad pepperoni pizza that you ate for lunch right how do you know it's actually the God that's speaking to you And the answer to that is, God will never ask you to do something that contradicts his word. And so I've had people through the years that have come to me and said, Gilbert, God has shared with me that it's okay that I leave my wife and I go off and live with this other woman. No, that wasn't God. (laughs) Or, Gilbert, I know that this is, you know, wrong according to God's word, but the Spirit spoke to me and gave me a peace that it's okay for me, though. Nope. Not you either. The Spirit will never, ever ask you to do something that God has already clearly outlined in his word. So the very first filter, anytime you think that, wait, did God just speak to me there? The very first filter is, what does God's word already say about this? If it's something he says is okay to do, then go for it. I mean, what, what if it wasn't actually the Spirit that told me to go get the chair? It still turned out to be a pretty good thing that happened, right? So there wasn't anything sinful about that. Now, what if I had, like, the Spirit said, go get the chair and beat this person over the head until they get it? Well, that would have been wrong. <laughs> that wouldn't have been the Spirit. <laughs> So, what does God's word have to say? So, with that being said, how do, we, how do we hear God's voice more? Here's what I put on your outline. To hear God's voice, I must immerse myself in the word of God. Again, to hear God's voice, I must immerse myself in the word of God. 
the more you know his word, the more clearly you're going to be able to hear from him. And so I want to give you an illustration I learned many, many, many years ago from Rick Warren, and it helped me, and hopefully it'll help you as well. And it's basically, how do you get a good grasp on your Bible? How do you get a grasp on your Bible? So you notice there in your outline, if you're uh, taking notes, I have a sort of an outline of a hand there, and I know it's close to Thanksgiving. We're not making turkeys out of it, all right? <laughs> I know some of you, that's where you, you wanted to go with it, but that's not where we're going, all right? Here's what I want you to do. On the pinky finger, I want you to write the word here, H-E-A-R, here. This is the primary way that most Christians get the word of God, is that they hear it, whether it's from a pastor or radio or TV or whatever, they're hearing God's word. And there's nothing wrong with hearing God's word. You need to hear God's word. But here's the problem with that. Studies have been done that show that we as humans forget 95% of what we hear within 72 hours after we first hear it. Here's why that's depressing for me. I put a lot of work into these messages. (laughs) Only to have you forget 95% of it by Wednesday. Now, we do some things that helps to keep that retention up. So why do we put all the things on the screen? Because not only then are you hearing it, but you're seeing it as well. We give you the outlines so that you can read it for yourself. We have fill in the blanks. Why? Because as you interact with God's word, it helps you to retain it. Sometimes I'll ask you to actually say a word out loud. Why? Because now you're actually saying God's word out loud. So there are some tricks of the trade, so to speak, to help you a little bit more to retain God's word. So you need to hear it. The next thing then on your uh, ring finger is I want you to write the word read. R-E-A-D, read. Every single day, you should be opening up God's Word and reading a little bit of it for yourself, whether it's five minutes, ten minutes, a half hour, whatever it is for you, open it up and begin to read it. Now, I would recommend that you would start in the the New Testament, maybe even with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read through those. Those are the stories of Jesus and who Jesus is and his life and his ministry and his death, his burial, his resurrection. Read those stories. And don't really worry at this point about the things that make sense, the things that don't make sense. Just keep, just read it. Immerse yourself in it every single day. And if something does sort of stand out at you, think about that a little bit. Pray about, okay, how could that sort of guide me through the rest of my day? Now, 99% of Christians, this is all they ever get. They hear God's word. They read God's word. But remember, I said the goal is to have a good grasp on your Bible. Let me try to illustrate this for you. That's what it looks like with just the pinky and the ring finger. You notice that I have a very wobbly grip on this. Now, Satan wants to come and snatch God's word away from you. How easy would it be for Nate if if I asked him right now to come and take this away from me? How easy would it be? Very easy. Very easy. But yet this is how many of you are trying to live your Christian faith and your Christian life. It's pretty wobbly. 
So there's a third thing that you can do then on the middle finger. I want you to write the word study. Write the word study. This is where now you aren't just casually reading God's word. I mean, you still need to do that. But periodically, maybe a couple times in the week, you actually crack it open and there's a particular thing you want to study. Maybe it's a, a theological concept or maybe it's a particular word that you want to look at. Maybe it's an issue that you're dealing with in life right now. Maybe you have an anger problem and you're like, okay, I'm going to look up every single instance of where God's word speaks about anger. And then as, you, as you're studying through that and you're, you're reading those scriptures, you're like, oh, there's a, a cross-reference here to another verse. And so now you start to cross-reference and it's like, okay, that leads me to another verse. And oh, well, that verse leads me then back to another verse over here and that verse leads me. And you're starting to do that. And maybe you're getting on Google and you're looking up, you know, Bible dictionaries and, and concordances and, and commentaries. And you're like, I wonder, you know, what other people have said about this particular passage through the year. So you're, you're actually starting to study God's word for yourself now. On the index finger, on the pointer finger then, I want you to write the word memorize. And to me, this is really probably the most important one, well, actually the second most important one. Um, this is so important because you're not going to always have a physical copy of God's word in your hand that you can look something up. You're not always going to have your phone on you because you have it laying around somewhere that you can real quick pull up the, the scripture. So David in Psalm 119.11 said this, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. When Satan comes and attacks you, when Satan comes and tempts you in some way, the greatest way to defeat him is by quoting back the word of God to him. That's what Jesus did when Jesus was tempted in the desert. Three different times Satan comes to tempt him. All three times Jesus says, here's what the word of God says. And Satan flees. Because Satan can't stand the word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So you need to start memorizing Scripture. That way when Satan comes, you have a weapon. You have your sword ready in hand, ready to defeat him. Some of you are going, oh, I can't memorize anything. And I think I've shared with you before, the actual uh, Greek word for that is bullcrap. All right? Uh, <laughs> you... You, you can look it up. You can look it up. You have all kinds of things memorized, but here's the deal. We memorize those things which we think are important to us. So guess what? You have your kids' names memorized and your grandkids memorized, right? Why? Because they're important to you. You probably even have their birth dates memorized. Why? Because you wouldn't want to miss that. We used to memorize phone numbers all the time, but now with our phones, we do get to cheat on that. But we used to have a bunch of phone numbers memorized. And whose numbers did you have memorized? People that were important to you. You know exactly how to get to your workplace without GPS. Why? Because you've memorized the route. Why? Because a paycheck's important to you. We can all do it. It's just, is it important enough to us or not? Here's one you can start with. It's easy. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. 
See, there you go. You got one, right? Jesus wept. I don't know how it's going to help you, but at least it's a start. Maybe you'll start with Psalm 119.11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Let's try that one. Go ahead, do it. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You do it. See, you got it. Now, all you need to do is repetition because just because you say it once doesn't mean you've got it. So you need some sort of system of how am I going to repetitively keep saying this until I actually got it. So, you know, one of the easiest things that you can do is write down whatever scripture you want to memorize on an index card. Put that index card on the visor of your car. So every time you get to a red light, flip the visor down and there's your memory verse. And you look at it and you say it. And then you put the visor back up, the light turns green, and then while the, you're actually starting to drive, you say it out loud without looking at it. Or at least you try. And the next time you get to a red light, you flip it down, you read it out loud, yep, got it, flip it back up, now as you're driving, you say the next verse. And you just keep doing that over and over and over again until you've hidden God's word in your heart so that you may not sin against him. Here's one more tip for memorization. Memorize things which are important to you right now. So if you don't have an anger problem, don't memorize all the scriptures on anger. But if you have a problem with patience or you're having a, a problem with lust or you know whatever, those are the scriptures you're going to want to memorize. Why? Because they're important to you in the moment. All right, on your thumb then, write the word meditate. Meditate. You're going, wait a second, meditation, isn't that like new age or like, you know, weird or something? Should I, should I really do that? And the answer is yes. Because God's word says that we should meditate on his word. You're going, I don't know how to meditate. Well, yeah, you do. Here's how I know that you know how to meditate. How many of you have ever worried before? What meditation is, is concentrated thinking on one particular topic. And isn't that what worry is? Concentrated thinking on one particular topic. You have something in your mind and you keep thinking about it over and over and over and over again and it starts to control your life. The opposite of worry is meditation in that you meditate on God's word. Maybe it's your scripture memory verse that you're doing. And you just keep running it over and over and over again in your mind, and you just keep chewing on it, trying to get every little bit out of it that you can. I think I've shared this before, but the actual uh, word for meditation in the Greek is the same word that is translated for the, uh, a cow chewing its cud. So what does a cow do when it, it chews grass? It swallows it and then it throws it back up and then it chews it again and swallows it and throws it up and chews it again. Why? It's getting every little bit of nutrient out of that piece of grass that it can. And that's what we're to do with God's word. We're to just keep looking at it in different ways and different angles and, and you look up the, you know, the different words. What does this mean and what's the original for that? And so that's part of study. It helps your, your meditation of it as well. And you just keep thinking about it over and over and over, chewing on it till you get every little bit that God wants for you to get out of that. All right. So those are the five fingers, right? So this is what it looks like. If you have hear, read, study, memorize, meditate. Much more solid, right? 
But could Nate come and snatch that out still? Sure. So there's one more thing that you need to do, and this is the most important one. On the palm there, I want you to write the word apply. Jesus' brother said this, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Don't just hear the word, be doers of the word. Don't just read the word, be doers of the word. Don't just study the word, be doers of the word. Don't just memorize the word, be doers of the word. Don't just meditate on the word, be doers of the word. You need to apply what it is that you're hearing and reading and studying and meditating and memorizing. Got to get those palms on there. You need to take a good tight grip. Now he's bigger than I am, so maybe he could take this way. But it'd be a pretty good fight now, wouldn't it? Does this make sense? If all it is, it's just your pain. If all you're getting out of God's word is hearing me for 40 minutes on Sundays, it's pretty wobbly. If you do all these six things, you get a hold. Now all of a sudden life becomes solid. And now when Satan comes to attack, instead of him attacking you, you're able to (laughs) beating him with the word of God. And life becomes so much easier. I'll close with this then. John writes in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have, that he will listen to us whenever we ask him for anything in line with his will. And if we really know he is listening when we talk to him and make our request, then we can be sure that he will answer. Communication is a two-way street. Today we've been talking about God talking to us, but he wants a relationship. He wants us to talk back to him in prayer. But many of you don't even know how to pray. Well, guess what? The secret to prayer is what we talked about today. Hear God's word. Read God's word. Study God's word. Memorize God's word. Meditate on God's word. Apply God's word. Because the more you get his word in you, now the more your prayers back to him, the more your conversation to him is going to be directed in a godly, kingdom-minded type of way. Your prayers are not going to be those selfish prayers, anything of God give me this and God do that and all that. Now it's going to be God how together can we make a bigger difference here in Harrisburg and all around the world? And John says, when you pray those types of prayers, when they're in alignment with the will of God, you can be sure that God has heard those prayers and he is going to grant those requests. So last week we looked at how to intellectually know whether you're saved, how to intellectually know that there is a God. Today it's all been about how to experience God. And that there's some things that God's going to do that just our mind just doesn't even comprehend. But yet it's proof that there is a God and that he's working in your life. But we can facilitate that greater by getting a grasp on our Bible. I can't do this for you. Again, I cannot in 40 minutes microwave spirituality into you. You have got to do some of this work yourself. I'll help you, but I can't do it for you. So don't just be hearers of the word, be doers as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this day and thank you for this opportunity we've had to 
to gather together to hear your word and to, to learn how we can experience you in deeper and deeper ways. And Lord, we do want to hear your spirit. And we want to be 100% clear that it is your spirit. We don't want to be in doubt. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us here today would just uh, take these things that we've looked at here at the back half of this message and start to do it. Hear your word, read your word, study your word, memorize your word, meditate on your word, and apply your word. And Lord, I know as we do that, and as we as your sheep hear your voice, we'll be more spirit-led, spirit-directed. We'll be doing more godly things with our lives. And Lord, I can only imagine what if all of us here started to do that. What a difference that would make, not just for exponential, but for other churches and, and, and for our city. And ultimately, Lord, uh, our, our state and our nation, our world could be changed if just a, a handful of people just would completely sell out to you in this way. Lord, help us to be those people. Not because we're special, but just because we're obedient. Lord, use us. Use us to make a difference for you and your kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.